Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Dr. Remko Limhus is the Assistant Director for Policy and Public Affairs at AJC's Raymer Institute for German-Jewish Relations, based in the bustling center of Berlin, Germany. Remko, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the way that Germany thinks about Hezbollah, the terrorist organization slash government party um, in Lebanon. And I I put it that way advisedly because the German government actually does treat it um, as though you can be both a terrorist organization and a legitimate political group. Uh, Do you think that that's the right way to look at Hezbollah as having separate military and political wings? Uh, obviously not, no. I mean, this is a distinction which the European Union came up with in 2013 after the suicide bombing in Burgas where Hezbollah targeted Israeli tourists and killed five Israeli tourists. So, And there they came up with these distinctions because they couldn't bring themselves to, you know, fully ban Hezbollah because it's part of the Lebanese government. So they said, okay, we have like a military wing, but we have also a political wing. So and the German government looks at it exactly this way and treats it as if you could differentiate between these two wings, but even their own security agencies always maintain that there is no such thing as a military or a political wing. It is one organization and uh, one organization only. Uh, I'll just add that in that bombing in Burgas, Bulgaria that you referenced, there were five Israelis killed. Yes, there was also a European citizen, a Bulgarian bus driver uh, who was killed. Yes, yes, yes. um, yes. Additionally, that was now five years ago. And things change over that span of time. In June, at the beginning of this month, rather, the Bundestag, the German parliament, considered a resolution that would designate Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist group. Now, the resolution failed, but does it reflect some kind of progress that that the issue came up? Um, the problem with that resolution was that it was introduced by the far-right Germany uh, alternative for Germany. So... And I mean, this is like their political way of treating things like uh, uh, playing that they are like the protector of the Jewish state and of the Jewish people in Germany. So and I mean that it is a shame that the AFD brought it up, uh, but it could happen because the mainstream parties left a political vacuum that the AFD could, you know, uh, fill with their propaganda more or less. So, and we really do hope that the mainstream parties will, you know, reconsider this and bring their own resolution to the floor because the problem is obviously not going anywhere. And, uh, but I have to say, and I guess that is like something that we have achieved over the last weeks or months, that the things we have done, you know, Hezbollah for the first time in a long time is a topic and is discussed in public. So that wasn't the case six months ago. So that is definitely something that we as AJC, together with other organizations and partners, definitely achieved. So, yeah. 
the the far right AFD are not exactly the the friends that we would want. You point out, but speaking of friends who we would want, um, last week two Democrats, uh, Representative Ted Deutsch and Representative Grace Meng, and two Republicans, uh, Representative Gus Bilirakis and uh, Representative Lee Zeldin, um, sent a letter to German Chancellor Angela Merkel urging Germany to designate all of Hezbollah as a, a terrorist group. Um, do you think that American pressure, whether it comes from uh, from the U.S. Congress or from an organization like AJC, could be a successful tool at moving German policy? That is definitely an asset for our work. And I would urge our listeners and especially our lay leaders to bring this up when they meet with their congressmen and women, that, you know, that the congresswoman and men, when they meet with their, their German counterparts and the German parliamentarians, bring this up because... Uh, in Germany, it's pretty hard, still pretty hard to talk about this topic. And, you know, it always helps some friends that remind you that uh, this is a topic that is not going anywhere. And I mean, Hezbollah is not going anywhere. So, and we could definitely need this kind of support from every, from, from every angle. You wrote a phenomenal op-ed last month, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, in International Politics and Society Journal. Um, you wrote there, quote, Hezbollah is using Europe to secure its financing. Um, can you tell us more about what that means and, and why it's not just foolish, but actually dangerous for Germany and, and the rest of Europe to continue to perpetuate this weird tolerance of Hezbollah? Sure. So Hezbollah obviously is heavily involved in organized crime in Germany as well as in other European countries, France, for example. So and they generate funds here. And I cite one example in my article from 2015, which then triggered a bigger investigation where also uh, European law enforcement agencies cooperated with their U.S. counterparts. And that was a group of like roughly a dozen people. And estimates are that they generated and laundered money for a South American drug cartel. And they, the estimates are that they generated 1 million euros a month. So, and that is like only these 12 people. So, and I mean, you can, wow. you know, then you have a guess of how much money Hezbollah generates here. And so definitely Hezbollah is using Europe, but especially Germany as a place to generate funds. And even uh, so in, in last year, uh, the federal prosecutor general investigated 35 crime cases in which the uh, suspects had ties to Hezbollah. And that is only the federal level in Germany. So we don't have numbers for, the, for all the 16 states. So that all gives you an idea of how much Hezbollah is involved in organized crime in Germany. And so even if you kind of subscribe to that, you know, weird idea that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom <clears throat> fighter and and really, you know, you can't fault Hezbollah for taking action against Israel because I don't know why, but people do excuse it. Um, you would have to recognize that Hezbollah is involved in the drug trade and money laundering and all kinds of organized crime, like you say, uh, that is harming uh, Europe as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it, it is so, and that is what we try to explain to German decision makers and politicians, that we say, look, this is not a, I mean, it is a Middle East issue, obviously, and it's a security issue for Israel, but it is also in domestic, uh, it is also in foremost a domestic issue for, for Germany. So, and uh, that is 
what a lot of people have, you know, trouble coming to grapple with the fact that, that Hezbollah is involved so heavily in these organized crime. And I mean, also last, just last week, we learned in 2015, the police and MI5 intelligence services were tipped off by Israel, by the way, about a bomb-making factory where uh, they discovered uh, three tons of ammonium nitrite, which is an ingredient for homemade explosive that also shows, again, it is not only an organized crime issue, it is still a terrorist issue. And even if Hezbollah is now, you know, laying low, we definitely have to be aware of the fact that if things flare up between Israel and Iran or between the U.S. and Iran, Jewish and Israeli institutions in Europe, in Germany, will be targeted by Hezbollah. It almost seems like the better kind of way of dividing Hezbollah is not into a, a political wing and a military wing, but into a terrorist wing and an organized crime wing. You know, this is not yeah. this, this, <laughs> this is this is not half political party and half, you know, uh, freedom fighters. This is half, you know, a mafia and, and half Al-Qaeda. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. And I mean, the model is not new and it's not, you know, it's not only Hezbollah that is, I mean, the Taliban also are involved in like drug smuggling and whatever. So, but uh, the thing that German and German like policy makers, German parliamentarians have to understand that this is a domestic crime issue. So, and uh, they have to, they have to take care of this. Um, I want to ask you now, you know, we spoke briefly about this bill to recognize uh, mm. all of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization that failed. Now, there was um, an interesting bill that passed in the Bundestag uh, this past month, and that was about recognizing BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, as anti-Semitic. Um, it was, I think there were four different bills under consideration, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was the one um, put forward by Angela Merkel's leading party in, in the government that ultimately passed. Um, what does that bill say? Uh, what does it not say? And what should we who, who care about Israel know uh, about Germany's approach to BDS? So just first of all, it, it's not actually a bill. It's more a resolution that mm-hmm. the parties agreed to and uh, that practically said that BDS is an anti-Semitic movement that it uh, threatens Israel's security and that Germany and uh, urges especially, you know, tries to restrict, um, even though it's not binding, but, you know, that no, no federal money or, or no taxpayers' money is given to organizations or to events that have links to Hezbollah. And it was just a reiteration that Germany uh, and the, the parties in the German Bundestag just wanted to highlight their opposition to BDS, which, I mean, obviously in a German context has a very special meaning. And uh, that uh, that was kind of the resolution. But it was also disappointing to see, on the other hand, that even friends of Israel, I mean, uh, and people who call themselves friends of Israel and are friends of Israel, but felt the need to, you know, have an, write an extra letter to that resolution that they still want to have, like, their right to criticize Israel. So it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword with this resolution. Um, and just one final question. Uh, there is a lot of political upheaval in Germany uh, right now. The the leader uh, of one of the major parties in Germany recently resigned. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Angela Merkel has resigned as the leader of her party. Um, she's currently slated to remain chancellor through the next uh, election, which takes place, I think, in 2021. Yeah. But uh, but even that might be tenuous. Uh, what what should Americans who who care 
care about Germany as a leader of Europe, who care about Germany as a, a friend and ally of the United States of America and, and of Israel, what should we know? Um, what should we know about the current political um, goings on in, in Germany? So that is a very complicated question. Even when you are sitting in Berlin, that is not an easy uh, question to answer. I mean, you mentioned that Andrea Nahles, which was head of the Social Democratic Party, just resigned. So the Social Democrats, as everywhere in Europe, are in decline. They are, I guess, now at like 12 percent uh, when you look at the polls. So we have an AFD that is still soaring. We have upcoming state elections in three states in eastern Germany, where it is very likely that the right-wing populist party will become the strongest party. Mm. And that should trouble all of us because they have clear ties to right-wing extremists. They're anti-European, they're anti-immigrant, and uh, that could change definitely a lot from our perspective. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will you know, have the prime minister of the certain state, but uh, just the fact that there are the strongest parties now, in the, at least in the polls, is very, very troubling and very troubling for us and should be troubling for everybody. Well, Remco will be watching that closely. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us here on AJC Passport. Thank you for having me. Bill Crystal was chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle. He founded and ran the political magazine The Weekly Standard and is seen as a ringleader of the Never Trump movement within the Republican Party. We sat down with him at the AJC Global Forum. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, you are in many ways uh, the dean of D.C. Jewish conservatives. Um, I've heard many of them credit you with helping them kind of come of age in, in this world. Um, so you have uh, you know a lot of acolytes in, in a certain sense, uh, but you personally are, are not aligned with Trump. I think that many of them are, are not aligned with the president. Um, are there two distinct wings of the party today and, and which is stronger? You know, I think there are about five or six distinct wings, as you'd expect from Jews, especially, I suppose. <laughs> and look, there are honest differences of opinion and differences in weighing how much one, you know, how much damage is Trump, Trump is doing on this front, how much good the Trump administration is doing on another front. If you're pro-Israel, there's a lot to be uh, pleased about, I think, with the Trump administration compared to President Obama. I think in other respects, though, that it's not quite as promising. Uh, there's a lot of sort of short-term good things for Israel. I'm not so sure how great Trump is in the longer term. But then there are other issues than Israel, of course, in general, including American foreign policy in general, and a strong America is good for, for Israel beyond the narrow questions of the U.S.-Israel relationship. So lots of different issues. I agree, it's an interesting time. Lots of people thinking and rethinking their... Uh, you know, their political associations and, and, and sort of the way they think about politics. We, we had an interesting session here at Global Forum yesterday with uh, Hallie Seufer and uh, Matt Brooks. So um, the kind of top Jewish Dem and the top Jewish Republican. And it was moderated by Dana Bash. And, and they were talking about political homelessness, um, right? Do, do we as American Jews, do we have a home today in our politics? I think that's a question that you've actually been grappling with for some time now. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any advice for the rest of us? 
Yeah, my advice is to actually take a look at the world and make sensible judgments about it and not to get too attached to one's own home. You'd think Jewish history teaches us that, hmm. except for the home, real home of the <laughs> Jewish people. Israel, that's a different story. But, but, you know, in terms of putting your faith in one set of politicians or another, or even one ideology or another, there are times, if you just think of the last couple hundred years, when the left, liberals generally, have been much better for the Jews. There have been times when the left has been terrible for the Jews, uh, especially the far left, and when sort of moderate conservatives have various kinds have been much better for the Jewish people or friendlier to Israel, obviously. Think of Ronald Reagan. So um, I think I I wouldn't worry too much about homelessness, actually. Someone uh, yesterday at at another panel uh, made a comment about, um, she said, I don't know much about housing policy, but if there's a candidate who I, you know, think is really awesome generally, and they have a really strong opinion about housing policy, I'm going to be likely to think that that's a good idea. It sounds like you're suggesting that people take a slightly more informed uh, look at different political stances, or, or do you think that that's appropriate sometimes? Yeah, I think that's appropriate sometimes. Look, I think there are things you just rule out. You know, there are certain points of view, in my opinion, that aren't good for the Jewish people, aren't good for America. And if someone uh, espouses that point of view or is in bed with people who hold a certain point of view, authoritarianism on the right or the left, anti-Semitism on the right or the left, I would just rule that out. I don't really care how good the housing policy is of someone who is fundamentally hostile to the Jewish people, hostile to civil liberties, hostile to religious liberty, hostile to Israel. Having said that, there's a big swath of people and opinion in between where there are reasonable disagreements about public policy. And I'm, I'm a believer, yes, you shouldn't get too obsessed with the details of policy, probably. And instead, when you elect a president, I mean, I worked in the White House for four years, I have a little sense of this, maybe, you're electing someone whose judgment you trust, whose basic character you trust, whose basic worldview you're comfortable with. And I think that makes more sense than getting it now into the details of policy. Now, I suppose if you're choosing among people who have similar worldviews, and that would be the case, let's say, for Democrats with this year's you know, huge field of contenders, maybe you'll pick a policy area you care the most about and find some. But policy is going to have to go through Congress anyway. So I think there's probably a little bit too much focus in the media on policy. Uh, they think they're being conscientious to focus on policy because that's kind of wonky. But actually, what you care more about is broader worldview and broader judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've you've mentioned Israel a few times. Uh, is is it safe to say that you prefer this administration's handling of that issue to the last ones? I prefer this administration's handling of Israel per se to the last ones. I don't prefer this administration's overall foreign policy. However, I don't didn't like the last ones much either. But I think this one's even worse. And at the end of the day, Israel depends on a strong U.S., a strong set of alliances, a world order where the U.S. acts to preserve the peace and generally strengthen the forces of liberty and of democracy. And I'm not so sure in that respect that I'm pretty sure the Trump administration has not been good in that broader sense for Israel. The easiest way to think about it is maybe something like this. I think moving the capital to Jerusalem was good. You know, other particular decisions were good. On the other hand, is what's happening with Syria, I mean, where we're doing nothing, that's in a way a continuity with the last administration. That's dangerous for Israel. Uh, Iran is our Iran policy really coherent. That's not so great for Israel. Uh, I think placing huge bets on Saudi Arabia is a mistake personally. So I'm not, uh, a weak U.S. is not good for Israel. And there I think in different ways and with different intentions, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, neither has really strengthened the U.S role in the world. But I think Trump has done more damage by calling into question the fundamental reliability of the U.S. as an ally and as a partner. Are we ever going to see Jared Kushner's peace plan? 
I mean, I guess we'll see parts of it, and uh, I, I don't have great hopes. Uh, to be fair, I wouldn't have great hopes probably at this point for most peace plans, but... Um, so I, don't, I haven't really paid that much attention to it, partly because I don't have great hopes. I think there are concrete things that can be done and should be done to, you know, ameliorate the situation among the Palestinians. And I think some administrations of both parties, honestly, have tried to do that. And my sense is that to the degree that there's substance to the peace plan, a lot of it has to do with economic development and other things that are, uh, you know, would be there would be bipartisan support for, actually, and that any other administration would be doing as well. Bill, what did you think about the recent kind of noise about a potential military engagement with Iran? Do you think that 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 there was much substance to that? No, I mean, I don't know anything. And maybe I hope we're doing some things behind the scenes to mess up their nuclear program. But um, (laughs) and, you know, I'm not dogmatic that we have to can't ever get involved anywhere, obviously. But no, that struck me as no, I I don't know much, but I I don't have the sense that there was much there. I I was a huge critic of the Iran deal. And I um, I think the administration was right to to look to pull out of it. And I think the critics who said pulling out of it was going to lead to a cascade of horribles were wrong. I mean, there's nothing, there's no obvious great damage that's been done by pulling out of it. And some good things, I think, in terms of pressure on the Iranian economy. On the other hand, you do need to have a strategy, not just to, you know, want to be tough. And a strategy does involve working with allies and being serious about which allies can really do you a lot of good or not. And I'm not so sure the administration has thought that through. Uh, there was this kind of um, maligned shorthand for the Obama foreign policy, um, you know, don't do stupid stuff, right? Um, do, do you think that there's an organizing principle behind Trump foreign policy? No, I mean, America first, I guess, which was a kind of, you know, isolationism combined with working at a very in a short-sighted way, I'd say, with a few people whom Trump seems to like a few allies, mostly authoritarians, I would say. Um, No, I don't think there's much of an organizing principle. And I think to the degree that he is damaging the sense that we stand for freedom and democracy, that we're going to work more closely with our allies than our adversaries, I think that's damaging. And I think it's ultimately damaging to Israel. The Israeli government, you know, works with Trump. It's the, uh, why not? It's the, they have to. He's the only president uh, in in, in power right now. So I don't- (laughs) We only get one at a time. uh, Yeah, I don't criticize them much. I do criticize them a little, though, for investing too much, in a sense, in Trump's view of the world and in, and thinking that this is sort of the way it's going to be going forward. I'm really doubtful about that. And so I think a little more distance from any particular administration might be wise and reminding people, look, the best thing for Israel is a strong U.S., strong West. I mean, we don't like everything that Western Europe is doing, God knows, with respect to Israel. But the way to check those things is to have the U.S. very much involved with Western Europe and other allies involved and an ability to work with our friends there and not to write them off. And I think this notion that, you know, because uh, Mr. Orban in Hungary says something nice about Netanyahu, that therefore they're a reliable partner of Israel, that I really don't agree with. I assume it's uh, safe to say that you're not going to be voting for President Trump in 2020. I don't expect to, no. Uh, Is there any, you know, uh, in, in 2016, you were instrumental in, in creating a, a third party candidacy. Do you think there's a chance that you might vote for one of the Democratic candidates? Is there anyone who uh, who's who's kind of um, exciting you right now? Yeah, I'd be inclined to, to vote for one of the moderate Democrats, including Joe Biden, if he won the nomination. Um, you know, 2016, there was you such have a, a thing for vice presidents. I do exactly. <laughs> Having worked for a while, I discussed that once with Vice President Biden. I haven't done him very well, but we had a funny conversation about the pluses and minuses of, of being vice president, which he, I think he enjoyed. And uh, 
I mean, I'm not sure he's the right horse. Ultimately, you know, he's he's uh, he could falter, and then the question is, could another moderate emerge? I'm worried about the pull of the left in the Democratic Party, just like the pull of the right in the Republican Party. I think the nightmare scenario is a sort of Bernie Sanders Democratic Party and a Donald Trump Republican Party. I think that's bad for the country. It's bad, in my opinion, for the Jewish community. It's not good for Israel. And um, I think, you know, people in both parties need to work hard to push against that. I'm, I, I don't presume to tell other people what to do in terms of endorsing candidates or, you know, it's complicated figuring these things out. I think the main thing we can do is make our arguments. But um, we need to strengthen the sort of center of American politics, whether that's ultimately a centrist new party, it's conceivable. The healthier situation would be to have two healthy parties. Now, with, in, <laughs> 2016, nice? in 2016, I just thought you couldn't get enough Republicans to vote for Hillary Clinton. And so the better thing to do is to give them an alternative. And we recruited at the end of the day, Evan McMullen, and he got a million votes. And I think they mostly came out of Trump, honestly. So that uh, I felt okay about that. But um, I'm pretty certain they mostly came out of Trump. But um, I don't I think Hillary Clinton had fairly or unfairly, there were particular obstacles to her uh, among uh, for, among Republican voters, which there wouldn't be for a Biden or for a Buttigieg or for other, uh, you know, uh, Michael Bennett of Colorado or Hickenlooper or a bunch of moderates. Now, whether, you know, if you go, if you, as you go further left, how many Republicans would be comfortable voting for some of those other candidates is an interesting question. A lot would depend on what they say. You know, a lot of them are pretty unknown, don't have long track records. Some of them are tacking to the left temporarily, presumably in the tem- in the primaries, you know, a Cory Booker or Campbell Harris, perhaps, but would end up being, you know, acceptable to a broad swath. But the main thing, if you just step back a minute, is for me is it, one of the great things about America, one of the things that saved us from the problems of Europe uh, to a large degree is we have, you know, a center right party that is committed to liberty and constitutionalism. It's got its own issues, obviously, and people might not like aspects of it. And a center left party that's also committed to the basic structures of the liberal order, the constitutional order, the world, the international liberal order. Uh, that's been good for America. You know, it's good to go from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration without huge disruption and with a kind of common strand in terms of foreign policy and really domestic policy uh, in many aspects, at least. It's not good to go to a European situation where you have an ethno-nationalist party on the right, a sort of socialist and vaguely anti-Israel party on the left, uh, people in the middle trying to figure out how to pull both parties back to the center. That's what you'd have to do if you face that situation or maybe having a third party. But that's tough in America. So I, I think really working hard to preserve reasonableness in both parties is the key. Bill Crystal, thank you for joining us here at the AJC Global Forum and here on AJC Passport. My pleasure. Always great to be with the AJC. Now it's time for our closing segment. Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Chile. Good for the Jews? I spent this past weekend in Viña del Mar, Chile, with a group of 30 leaders of the FEJ, the Federación de Estudiantes y Jóvenes Judíos, the Chilean Jewish Student Union. Chile is a remarkable country and one of rising importance on the world stage. It combines political stability, unfortunately lacking in much of Latin America, with prosperity, industry, and tourism. It is also home to a community of 400,000 Palestinians, the largest number of any country outside the Middle East. 
For years, this community, which is largely Christian and left the Middle East decades before Israel's founding, coexisted quite warmly with Chile's Jewish population. But it has lately radicalized. And now the 15,000 or so Jews of Chile feel routinely victimized by the much larger, influential Palestinian community. That's the message I heard from many of the Chilean Jewish youngsters I met with who, despite being overwhelmingly progressive themselves, are far more concerned by the anti-Semitism coming from the left and the Palestinian community than they are by far-right anti-Semitism. Still, despite these students' concerns, their passion and their desire to be more effective advocates was nothing short of inspiring. Chile certainly presents challenges for the Jewish community. But I know that with these remarkable students leading the way, that beautiful country will be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.